And now Don will come up and sing a solo. Now take a seat. Get your Bibles out if you would, or your phones. We'll dive into the Word of God this morning. Once again, though, let's, let's pray. Lord, as in all things, we desire that you be exalted. You are our creator. We are sustained by you. We are propelled by your power. Jesus, we were created by you, through you, and for you. And we want you to be glorified in our lives. We live in a world that is under the control of our enemy, Satan. We are bombarded with lies. We are deceived. We are prone by our sinful nature to love the wrong. Many times, even though we know the better way. We desire that you be, though, through the power of the Holy Spirit, our leader, our guide, our teacher. May you be exalted, may you be lifted up, and would you open our eyes this morning, giving us insight into the Bible. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. By the way, I just keep forgetting this, but you know, because of the, the COVID restrictions and, and the idea of collecting an offering, we have an offering box back there if you want to give uh, your offering to the church, there's a box back there. It's probably the safest and way we can do that, the healthiest way we can do that. That being said, uh, we're going to continue our series on different after we've taken some time off from that as I had to kind of just felt led to address all of the, the unique situation our country is in with uh, all the, the protesting and, and the violence and and so on. It is a different time that we are living in. Um, I was reminded of how different things are being back in the uh, Ohio or in the Midwest. I was telling um, Frank and Shan yesterday as I was in the office working on the sermon, and they had updated the server, and my computer wasn't connected to that, so we had to get that fixed. But um, I saw a lot of American flags flying. I, you just don't see that in Washington State, at least on this area as much. And I was just taken back by that because they were just kind of everywhere. I was moving my sister up to a place in, from southern Ohio to, to mid or middle of Ohio, uh, just near Columbus, Ohio, and drove through one, one town called Baltimore, Ohio, and I have never seen as many, it's been years that I've seen that many flags flying, American flags flying. Um, I think we saw all of our time there, one of the LGBTQ flags that you kind of see regularly here. I saw, I can't tell you how many Trump-Pence signs. I saw one Biden sign. Of course, he hadn't selected Kamala Harris as his running mate, but um, lots of, a different kind of beauty, lots of corn. I forgot about the corn and the rolling hills and all of that and so on. That was beans and and, and everything. Um, they still have bad drivers. I guess that's everywhere. But uh, it was just good to, uh, good to be back there, but it was really good to get back home and to see just, in my opinion, the unmatched beauty of the Pacific uh, Northwest. Um, and to more traffic. 
So if we could just get rid of the traffic. <laughs> Anyways, that being said, I wanted to start off again. We're going to do a brief recap of about a month's worth of sermons in our time remaining this morning. I've been talking to you about this, that we are in a battle for the truth. And Jesus made this very clear. If you are of him, if you're on the side of truth, you listen to him. This is his conversation. The context of this verse is his conversation with Pilate. Pilate asks him before he's going to deliver him to be crucified if he's a king and what is truth. Here we go. So if there is a side of truth, logically there is a other side of lies. So there are truth and lies in our world. And either you're on the side of truth or you're on the side of lies. Either you're a child of God or you're a child of Satan because Satan is the father of lies. And that's kind of the background, as you can kind of see here just from this picture right here, that our world is in and has been for thousands of years. A battle for the truth has been raging. We see that even today when people who are so... Um, deceived in their thinking that believe that they can not only protest, but they can riot and loot and destroy, and that, that, that there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, how do we get to that point? Well, when people believe a lie over a long period of time, that lie becomes a reality to them. But I began this series as well talking about happiness. Do you remember this? I put this up about six weeks ago, this is kind of a breakdown, and this is very similar to the time of Jesus, by the way, of kind of our current political climate. On the left, you have kind of the really radical liberals and, and the failed Chaz or Chop experience uh, that, you know, people are finally beginning to see the reality of that. But then it's way radical. You have like some progressive Democrats, um, Alexandria Oscurio-Cortez would be representative of that. Some moderate Democrats. Uh, this guy, Chris Coons, here is, uh, I think he's from Delaware, Connecticut. He's got a, uh, a theology degree from Princeton. He's more of a moderate Democrat. You have moderate Republicans and Susan Collins and, and even a progressive Republican, which is Mike Pence. And by the way, this is just more of a traditional American view, conservative traditional American view. With what in the 50s and 60s, even 70s, that was what was kind of the norm in many ways. This is now considered progressive. Then you have these radical conservative groups that are just way radically militant groups and so on. That's kind of our current political culture that we live in. Now, each of these political groups that you see up behind me, they have a set of values and beliefs and ideals about how to bring about change. I'm not going to go into great detail this morning, but they consist of Americans and Americans believe in life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that's the end goal for all the groups you see up there that are listed. Happiness. We are in the pursuit of happiness. But they will go about achieving happiness in radically different ways. It's pretty understandable. This is, you might recognize this, our current religious landscape or, or culture that we live in. You have... Uh, liberal churches, which 
you know, 100 years ago, these were conservative churches, but now these mainline denominations are primarily liberal, and you can see the list there. I was part of a church, actually the church that I was an assistant or associate pastor in Kirtland, Ohio, used to be part of the, I think it was the Presbyterian PCUSA that went liberal, and they broke off from that and became an independent conservative evangelical church. So you can see some of these churches here that are denominations that are more conservative, kind of represented by people like, I think of Billy Graham would be more conservative and so on and whatnot. Then you have your world religions that aren't biblical at all, but they're just other world religions, pantheism, which is representative of Buddhism, Hinduism, Confucianism, and so on, secular humanism, which is the god of this age, which is basically atheism, the trust in mankind. You have new age and you have Islam. Those are the other world religions. And of these world religions, same thing. They have a set of values, ideals, beliefs, and how to bring about change. All, keep in mind that for all the differences between the political groups and the religious groups, and there are a myriad of differences, the end goal is the same. They want you to be happy. They want happiness. Now, Jesus has a goal as well. His goal also is that you would be happy. Happiness. And in fact, it's his concern, and it's one of his main concerns for you. And this should be obvious to all who's going to read these verses. So get your Bibles out and turn to Matthew chapter 5, 1 through 12. This is the very first sermon that Jesus Christ has preached that is recorded for us in the Scriptures. I remind you again, in the book of Genesis, at the fall of mankind, there was a curse pronounced by God upon mankind and upon his creation. The last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, ends with a curse. The very first sermon spoken by God himself in Jesus Christ, begins not with the curse, but with happiness, with blessing. The Bible ends with the removal of the curse and more happiness in the book of Revelation. Matthew chapter 5 begins with a theme of happiness. Now, since Jesus spoke only what he heard from the Father... We can safely assume that God the Father also wants you to be happy, that happiness is his concern. As we read this 12 verses, you're going to see a theme of happiness that it's so important to God and to Jesus and to the Spirit as well, that it repeats it nine times in 12 verses. You see the word blessed in the Sermon on the Mount. That simply means happiness or happy. That's what that word means. Let's read these first 12 verses together. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. 
Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You could take the word blessed and insert the word happiness. It means the same thing. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who mourn. Happy are the meek. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And again, I say to you, to, to the men and women here this morning, God desires for you to be happy. And the ultimate end of our happiness, as we see in these verses, is that it should result in rejoicing and exceeding gladness. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad. So not only does God want you to live a happy life and to be happy, he wants our lives to be full of joy and gladness. And is that true of you? Are you happy? And is your life full of joy and gladness? Because the first 12 verses lay out the point of the Sermon on the Mount. Real, abiding happiness. And the rest of the sermon tells us how that becomes possible. We put it another way, the Sermon on the Mount reveals the kind of lifestyle that produces this real kind of happiness. Are you with me so far? Now the way that you, excuse me, the way that you access this kind of happiness is found in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Basically put, this verse says that God has given you everything you need for life and godliness, and he's provided promises for you, and through these promises, you have lived the life of God. <coughs> Excuse me. So his divine power, it says, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Is God holding out anything on you? Look at that verse. Is he holding out on you with anything? No, you have all things. Through what? The knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence. And what has he granted to us? Promises. And he calls them precious and great. Did you know that the promises of God are precious and great? How many of you can recite maybe five promises that God has spoken in the Bible. You know it by heart. If you can't even get five promises, then I can tell you, you are not happy. You're not drawing from all that God has given you because the way that you obtain the life of God, that real happiness, the way that you live a life beyond, above and beyond the daily grind of, of, of the world and of, of life is through these promises. See, a promise is not a fact. When we say that God is just, is that a promise or is that a fact? It's a fact. But when you think of a verse like, such as Philippians 4, 6, and 7, it says, be anxious for nothing, but what? In everything, with thanksgiving, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, make your request be made known to God, and the peace of God 
which transcends all human understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. So what's your part in that promise? You have the peace of God that will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. What must you do on your end of that promise? Pray. Bring everything to God in prayer with, a, with thanksgiving. God then will keep his end of the bargain, give you his peace that will protect you, that will guard your heart. Jesus said himself, my peace I give to you. Is that a fact or a promise? That's a fact. But we access that peace. We have it lived the anxiety-free life through claiming the promise of Philippians 4, 6, and 7. So the way to obtain this real happy, satisfying life is through the promises of God, and that is what you need to know and claim. Because a fact calls forth praise from our lips, but a promise calls forth claiming for our lives. And you will have sometimes opposition to claiming a promise. Well, why? Because we're not of this world. Our enemy will attack us with lies and doubts. Is it really true that I can live an anxiety-free life? Is that what the Bible says? Yes. What Paul was writing is what Jesus had already said. Why are you anxious about what you will eat and drink and wear and all that and so on? God knows what you need. He'll provide for you. You don't need to be anxious. And look at our lives. Is God holding out on you? Do you not have more than enough? Then why are you anxious? So you obtain all the happiness that we've just read, blessed, blessed, blessed. You obtain that through his promises. What I want to do for our time this morning is look at the first four promises. Turn to Matthew 5, 3. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You may recall that the word poor there is a verb in the Greek that means a shrinking from something or someone to cower and cringe like a beggar. That is you and I. It's the same word that we used in Luke 16 when it says that there was a, at the gate in Luke 16 was a beggar named Lazarus. Now, this word commonly used for an ordinary poverty is a different word than the one used in Matthew 5, 3. It's the word Pentecost. It's find it in Luke 21, 2. It says he also saw a poor widow who put in two very small coins. You might remember that, the widow that, that didn't have a whole lot, but she had two small coins. She put it in to give to the temple. That's not us. We're not that poor. We're beyond poor. We have nothing. That's what he's saying here. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, there's nothing that you can offer God that is of value to him to get into the kingdom of heaven. Because it says here, the poor in spirit get the kingdom of heaven. While the widow had very little, she at least had those two small copper coins. She was poor, but she wasn't a beggar. We are completely dependent upon God to get into the kingdom of heaven. In other words, you and I have no skill. We can't function in society. The people that we're like are the crippled, blind, deaf, and dumb. They have absolutely no means of supporting themselves. 
all we can do, and what, which is what people did back, the, the, the blind, the lame, the crippled, in the time of Jesus, what they did is they would sit in a corner with a shamed arm high in the air, pleading for grace and mercy from somebody else, and that's how they made their existence. That is us before God. Do you remember the story of the man who was born blind? John chapter 9, as he passed by, meaning Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day, night is coming, when no one can work. For as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spat on the ground and made mud with saliva. He anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And he went and washed and came away seen. And here's the key thing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar. The blind could do nothing but sit and beg and were dependent upon the grace and mercy of others to exist. They said, that, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? That is us. We are poor in spirit before God. We are the blind men. And we're not just poor, we are begging poor. And here's the kicker. That person is happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. And I say to myself, what? Jesus is not talking about physical begging or physical poverty, but a poverty of spirit, an inner begging. The Old Testament puts it this way. God says, I, to this one I look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. And this is speaking of someone who shakes on the inside because of their spiritual destitution. God sees that person. He identifies with that person. And he's saying, happy are those whose spirit is destitute, whose spirit is bankrupt, who cringe in a corner, and they cry out to God for mercy. They're the happy ones because it's them and only them who can tap into the real resource of happiness, which is none other than God himself. I didn't go over this, but that word happy is an inner bliss. It's the same inner bliss that God exists in. That happiness, that deep, satisfying happiness is available to his children, to a citizen of his kingdom. And through his promises, we share the same state of inner happiness or bliss that God knows. In that message, that first beatitude, blessed or the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is completely opposite of the message of the world. Because the message of the world is that you can earn your way to God. You can live a good enough life. You can follow the rules. Now one final thought comes from Dr. Martin Lord Jones, which says this. I think this is so important. This is why this begins this way. Jesus starts this way. I'm going to read it to you. This of necessity is the one which must come at the beginning for the good reason that there is no entry into the kingdom of heaven apart from it. 
There is no one in the kingdom of God who is not poor in spirit. Do you understand that? The only people in the kingdom of God are those who are poor in spirit. It's the fundamental characteristic of the Christian. And that is the first building block. If you're going to start with building a house, the first stone would be this. You are poor in spirit. All other characteristics are in a sense the result of this one. I cannot merit the favor of God. And is the, when that person, when someone realizes that, they are on the road to happiness, to inner bliss. Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, the issue here in this beatitude is that you're not being sorry for any circumstance in your life. Whether you're lonely or discouraged or disappointed, you've lost a love or even someone has died, it's that you're being sorry that you're a sinner. See, the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, that's the intellectual part. We understand our spiritual bankruptcy before God. Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn. That's the emotional part. When we feel heartfelt sorrow and grief that our sin has caused God. So think of it as a deep, inner agony. And the kind of mourning that Jesus is referring to here. It's the strongest of all Greek words. It's reserved for mourning for the dead. You ever lost a loved one and really mourned for him or her? Turn your Bibles to Psalm 51. Let's look at some examples of mourning. Psalm 51 was written after King David had committed adultery with Uriah's Hittite's wife, Bathsheba. Here's a picture of a person that is mourning over their sin. Sorry, in verse 1 of Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, or blot out my sins. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. This is a picture of someone mourning over their sin. Look at verses 10 through 12. This is a picture of someone seeking comfort because of their sin. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit. I turn to Psalm 32, written at the same time in the life of David when he had sinned by committing adultery with Bathsheba. This is a picture, verses 1 and 2, of someone who has received comfort. So we have a picture of someone who's mourned over their sin, a picture of someone seeking comfort. And now here's a picture of someone who's received comfort. Verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 32. Blessed. Now what's that word mean? Happy. 
is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Happy is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. That's a picture of someone that's received comfort. And finally, verse 3 is a picture of someone who does not mourn for their sin. For when I kept silent regarding my sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. That person is not blessed. That's not happy. That is a picture of every unbeliever in the world. They live under the guilt of their sin. And they may try and bury it, try and ignore it, push it off to the side. It's still there. They can be hardened to it, lose all sensitivity, do unspeakable things. But when there's no mourning over sin, let's be clear in this, there's no comfort from God. And you want to know why the mourners are happy? Jesus said himself, why are the mourn, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be what, comforted? You want to know why they're happy? Because they're the only ones who are forgiven. They don't carry that guilt around with them. Nobody ever came into the kingdom of God who didn't mourn over their own sinfulness. That's in essence what he's saying. Because it's the poor in spirit who get the kingdom. It's those who mourn who are comforted. But you got to born over your sin. It's a evidence of the work of God within you because it's not natural to us in our sinful state. Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. And this is important. Since his kingdom, citizens of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, are meek. Let's, let's get a biblical understanding of what that word means. What is meekness? Well, it's valued highly in both the Old and New Testament. Psalm 25, 9 says that the meek God will guide in justice, and the meek God will teach his way. And so the meek, the humble, the contrite is really what these words mean. They're the kind of people that God, again, identifies with because he guides and teaches them his way. There's a renowned Hebrew scholar Wilhelm Gesenius, he says that the meaning of the Old Testament word for meekness involves a lowly, pious, and modest mind, now catch this, which prefers to bear injuries rather than to return them. In other words, when they get offended, what do they do? Do they retaliate? Do they respond in kind? They bear it. They put up with it. Let me take that back. They don't put up with it. Because the scripture is saying in Ephesians, bear with one another in love. They continue loving, despite being offended. That is not the way of the world. But it is the way of a child of the kingdom of God. In the New Testament, we find that meekness is what he expects of his kingdom people. In Ephesians 4.1, Paul says, I therefore, the prayers of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of the calling to which you've been called. How do you do that? With all lowliness and meekness. 
God's kingdom is for the meek, is for the humble. Logically, we conclude that meekness is the opposite of pride, right? It's the opposite of stubbornness, of vengeance, of fierceness. And hear me on this, because this is just life. The meek person will not expect to be always treated with respect and reverence. I mean, what a lie. Is that true of life, that you are consistently treated with respect and reverence? No. But because I know that, because his children should know this, we are patient in receiving of injuries with the belief that God will vindicate us. He will make things right. See, the heart of the meek is too great to be moved by little insults. Those little pot shots that come at you. In fact, it looks upon those who offer insults and who are offensive with pity. And this is a clear contrast to the person that is constantly offended. I know that you know people that are kind of in a constant state of offense. They are uncomfortable to be around. They are toxic. They're not safe. And you are proverbially walk on eggshells around them. Do you know what I'm talking about? They suffer every little insult to injury, and it throws them off their guard. And they will storm off in a, a, a rage of passion. Therefore, they're at the mercy of every person that chooses to agitate them. In contrast to that, the meek person, let me put it this way and be very clear in this, the meek person is almost impossible to offend. Is that you? Is it almost impossible to offend you? Now, meekness is different from being broken in spirit because being poor in spirit is negative. It results in mourning. Meekness is positive because it results in the next beatitude, you hunger and thirst for righteousness. And that's the beauty of the logical progression of our Lord's sermon. Since meekness follows being poor in spirit and mourning, we conclude that meekness comes out of those of a heart that is broken in spirit and mourns for their sin. The word meek also means this. It comes from a Greek word. I want you to hear me on this. Mild, gentle, and soft. But it's not just a person who is mild and who is gentle and is tender-hearted, who is patient, who is submissive, and so on. It is not weakness. That is not what meekness is. Meekness is not weakness. In fact, it's just the opposite. It is a byproduct of a self-emptying, a dying to self, a dying to self-rights. And that is hard for Americans because our very country is founded on what? Individual rights. A right to what? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We have an independent spirit that is ingrained within us to stand up for self. Meekness is a byproduct of self-emptying, self-humiliation, because it is a brokenness before God. Jesus said this. This is the process of a self-emptying or a dying to self in the life of a believer. 
And it begins, by the way, at salvation, Luke 9, 23. If anyone would come after me, what must he do? Deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. And it continues throughout your lifetime, Galatians 2, 20. Paul said this, I have been crucified with Christ and is what? No longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Jesus Christ lives his life through me as I die to self. I put his interests, his life on display in my life. That's the priority. I don't live in my flesh anymore. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And the Greeks understood meekness to mean this. It's a picture of the taming of a powerful horse. Meekness is power under control. It is power under control. Yes, it's, it's mild, it's gentle, it is soft. But it is not being subject to your passions and to your you know, wildly going off in a rage. No, you, you are under control. So it is power under control. Those of you that have ever been around horses, you get a horse, it doesn't naturally like to be ridden. What must the, be done to the horse? Broken. When it's broken, then it can be ridden, and be used. Same thing is true of us. Proverbs gives this beautiful picture of meekness. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. If you ruin your spirit, that power under control, that is true meekness. It's the opposite of violence, the opposite of vengeance, because it's a meek person who has died to self. They never worry about their own injuries. They bear no grudges. They never defend themselves because they know they don't deserve to be defended. Why do they think that? Because they know they are poor in spirit. This is why a meek person should be slow to anger. This is why Jesus is saying meekness characterizes people in his kingdom. And so what does a life of a citizen of God's kingdom look like? It's a life characterized by a continual recognition of spiritual poverty, a continual mourning over sin, a continual meekness or humility, and a continual hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. When you, again, keep before you and recognize your spiritual bankruptcy before God, it leads to you mourning over your sin. And when you see your sin and you mourn over it, and there's the intellectual and emotional part are working together, and you begin to compare yourself to a holy God, it's only natural that what takes place in you is meekness before God, a humility before Him. You ever had the desire and humility to just bow your head before God? That's a good sign. You recognize who He is and who you are. And in that humility, you realize that the only hope that you have of ever sharing in God's righteousness is that He has to give it to you. So let's tie this all together. This is who we are. Here's a picture of who we are. I won't bring him up, but I did a year, year and a half ago. 
But in Hebrews chapter 4, everyone turn there. Hebrews chapter 4. And I just want you to keep in mind that this is who we are. This is who you are. This is who I am. This is everyone who has been, been born. This is who we are. Hebrews 4, verses 12 through 13. It says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And I know that we, we read this verse, but when you really understand it, it should literally scare the hell out of you. Let me explain why. It says the Word of God, first of all, is living and active. It's not dead. Okay, the Word of God is not only the written Word of God, it's also the very person of Jesus Christ. It says it's sharper than any double-edged sword, that it even, the Word of God penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. Now, now, the word sword there is not for a typical large sword that you would see in Hollywood. It's more of a, a, a shorter knife or blade that would be for maybe more for surgery. So, can I illustrate that? I have this knife here. Think of this as the Word of God. It says that the Word of God penetrates to divide the soul and spirit. As a physical knife can divide what? Joint from marrow or joint from bone, okay? The Word of God divides what? The soul and the spirit. So the Word of God is cutting into you, dividing the soul and the spirit. And it says here, it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. The word judge there is not a very pleasant word. It's the Greek word kritikos. It's where you get a word critical. So the Word of God is now not serving as an encouragement, but as fault-finding. It is criticizing. It is looking for fault. And what's it judging? What's it criticizing? What's it analyzing? What's it say there? And you're going to have to say it. What's it saying there? What's it saying there? What's it saying there? The thoughts and attitudes or thoughts and intentions of the heart. So what is the Word of God looking at? Your heart. It's cutting you open. It's looking at your heart. And it's not just that. It says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare. And the idea here is of a wrestler who has put you in such a hold that you can't move. And it's also the idea of a prisoner who they're holding back. The head is held open by a knife that is under the, the, the chin here like this. So they can't look down. They're forced to look into the eyes of their accuser. And you're completely restrained. There's nothing you can do. You are laid bare. You are open. That's what the Word of God is, is, is doing to you. Why? Because you're going to have to give an account. And when God looks into your heart, in other words, all the masks that we put on, everyone looks good today, right? What if I could look into your heart? What would I see? How many of you want me to look into your heart? I don't want you to look into my heart.
And when the secret unseen thoughts and intentions of the heart are laid bare before the word of God, it is ugly. Let me give you a personal example. I'm not going to go into great detail, but we were moving my sister to her new place. Uh, we were in Ohio. She has two of her children. I really feel for my sister. I've talked to her about this. Uh, she married a, a man that kind of turned to be different than who he was and has left, has not paid alimony, and she's got the raw end of the deal. She had to raise these children on her own, and she is a half of the God's design for raising godly in, in kids. You need a father and a mother. She doesn't like to discipline. She'd rather be their friends. And so these kids have grown up with very little discipline, with very little consequences, with very little, you know, haven't been taught personal responsibility or accountability. And you can imagine in this world what that does to a child. We're seeing it before our very eyes. The opposite are my children. In a stable family, with a lot of discipline, accountability, and personal responsibility, and so on and so forth. We go to my parents' place, we're always working because nothing's getting done, even though they could do some of the work. And so when I'm having them work, particularly one of my nephews work, and he's really not working, and he's lazy, and the thought that came from my heart that, sh- that, that shocked me because I didn't know it was there, and I won't use the wording that came into my mind from my heart, but basically I was thinking of him, despising, looked down upon him as a wussy. But though, and I'm being kind to myself, have you ever looked down upon someone like that and they have no idea that that's what you're thinking of them? And I had no idea that was in my heart. Who knows that that was in my heart? God does. That is how ugly we are. And because the utter wickedness of the human heart I need another source for my righteousness because I can't attain that standard. And thankfully, God has provided it for us through his son, Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21. If you haven't memorized it, it'd be a great verse to memorize. God made him who has no sin to be sin for us. So in him, meaning in Jesus Christ, we become the very righteousness of God. God gave me, he looked at me, He forgave me, my slate is clean, and that's not good enough. I can't just be, you can't just be forgiven. If I have a credit card account, it can't be zero. I need to have the righteousness of Christ credited to my account. So that when God sees me, he doesn't see my sin, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's what God did for you and me. So when Jesus says that we are to hunger and thirst for righteousness, he's referring to hungering and thirsting after his righteousness. Because I understand I am poor in spirit, and it breaks my heart that that's who I am. And in humility, I see that I need the righteousness of God, so I hunger for that righteousness. Because it's only by his righteousness that I'm able to be in the kingdom of heaven because that's where God is. I'm in his presence. I have to be as holy and righteous as he is. That only comes through God transferring it to my account. Here's the kicker, though. If you do not hunger and thirst after his righteousness, you're not a citizen of his kingdom. 
You're not a child of God. Because either you're on the side of truth, right? Or on the side of lies. So a citizen of God's kingdom hungers and thirsts after the very righteousness of God. And let me give you, again, a picture of this. Psalm 42, verses 1 and 2. As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you. As the deer thirsts for streams of water, so my soul thirsts for you. As the deer hungers for streams of water, so my soul hungers for you, O God. Verse 2. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? When Jesus is talking about hungering and thirsting after righteousness, it's that same intense desire as we are to hunger and thirst after food and water. As a deer in the desert is, is longing and panting for a drink of water. This is such a strong desire that it is a continual driving pursuit of our lives. It's not a one-time experience that continual hunger for God. And I want you to see what Jesus is saying here. You need his righteousness like you need food and water. And in truth, anybody coming into his kingdom and continuing to live in his kingdom has as great an appetite and thirst for righteousness as a man does for food and water. Well, why? Because you will never live spiritually without his righteousness. So when a person is dying of starvation, there are three phases the human body goes through. The first phase is where the body tries to maintain blood glucose, glucose levels by first breaking down glycogen into glucose. But only enough glycogen, however, is stored in the person's liver to last a few hours. After that period of time, blood glucose levels are maintained by the breakdown of fats and proteins. And after a few weeks of exhausting all the fat reserves in the human body, it turns to proteins for energy. And what's the source of protein in the human body after fat? Muscles. That's the largest source of protein, and that becomes quickly depleted. And at the end of this phase, proteins, which are essential for cellular function, they're broken down and cell function degenerates. So you have loss of weight. You have symptoms of starvation that include apathy, withdrawal, listlessness, increased susceptibility to disease, flaky skin, changes in hair color, and massive swelling in the lower limbs and abdomen, causing the person's abdomen to do what? bloat out. Here's a picture of a starving child. Now, we really don't see that too often in America, but that's a picture of a person, regrettably of a child, who is starving to death. How hungry is that child for food and water? I mean, how hungry do you think they look? Look at that picture. Because that is the same hunger that you are to have for his righteousness. Not just one time to get into the kingdom of heaven, but continually. 
That is what characterizes, that's what the lifestyle of a kingdom, of a citizen of God's kingdom, that's what they look like. And for as horrific as it is to see someone die of hunger, it is even more disturbing to see the horror of a spiritual hunger that has gone unfulfilled. And the best picture that I could think of that looks like this is described by Jesus in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, who both live and then die. And Lazarus goes to, to heaven, call it heaven, or the, Abraham's bosom, and the rich man goes into Hades, and it says in verses six, Luke 16, 23 and 24, in Hades he was in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. That's what it looks like for someone who does not hunger and thirst for the righteousness of God. They leave this life, and that is what their existence is. That is a horrific picture. Have you ever seen someone that has been in real deep pain? Maybe they just found out that a loved one died, and they're weeping, and they're mourning, and they're crying out. It is not pleasant to be in the presence of that person. That is what he's saying here. A spiritual hunger that goes unfulfilled and the suffering that goes along with that, 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 it's horrific to think about. It's horrific to see this child. But a citizen of his kingdom hungers and thirsts after the righteousness of God. Now I want to end on a positive point here. The driving desire of our lives is to have his righteousness. But don't overlook God's response to each of these first four Beatitudes. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. What do they get? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. What do they get? They shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. What do the meek get? They inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For what? That hunger goes filled. They shall be satisfied. They shall be filled. Now that is great. And it shows the generosity of God. And if you were to total up just those first four benefits or blessings that God gives his children, what do you get? You pretty much get everything. You get the kingdom of heaven. You get the earth. You don't go hungry. You get comfort. I mean, you get everything. It's, everything's going to be yours. Now, I believe that that is Jesus' very point. That the world would look to have you work like mad to get what I am offering you freely. If you just come to me. If you come into my kingdom on my terms, you get it all. That's a good deal. And so what I'm asking you to do, since we've gone over this before, it's a review in one sense, ask yourself this question. How would you rate yourself living the different life he calls you to live? Are you happy? Are you hungering and thirsting after his righteousness?
Let's pray. Father, as we close this morning, we thank you for this time. We invite the word of God to be just that, that, that living and active sword that penetrates deep within. And, and Lord, show us as hard as it may be what is in our hearts. That we may mourn over our sin and find the comfort that only you can give. That we may be humbled before you. Knowing that in our humble state, reminding us that we will inherit the earth. Created us that hunger and thirst for your righteousness. Knowing that you will feed us, you will fill us, we will be satisfied. Thank you for showing us the way to the kingdom of heaven. And all God's people said, amen. A cool day. God bless you and just quietly exit the building, hang out as much as you want outside. Enjoy your day. Give me